Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you have questions along the way, we would love to take time to answer them as much as we can. At the end of every podcast, we try and create space uh, to be able to answer those questions. There are three ways that you can send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Uh, You can also direct message us on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Or you can also direct message us on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is thegrovech. I would love for you to send us those questions. All right. Well, this week we are wrapping up Ezekiel, which uh, this has been fun because this is the first like big deep dive I've ever gotten to do in Ezekiel. So learning a lot. Um, he's quickly becoming one of my favorites. Um, and also just remembering like, boy, the guy's kind of a, just, he's just got a weird call. He's got yeah. a weird call on his life. So, uh, <laughs> but we're kind of past all of that. We're past the the super depressing note that we left you on last week in Ezekiel. And it's all uphill from here. Yeah. Um, well, uphill for Hopefully. Israel, downhill if you're any of these kingdoms we're about to talk about here <laughs> a little bit. It's coming. All right, so after after the bummer that was last week, we jump into a new section of Ezekiel. Uh, this time we are focusing on Yahweh's judgment of the other nations. We start off with a couple quick hits. So these are just really quick little oracles about, you know, hey, you're doomed. Um, and these are the nations that are that directly border Judah. So, and it's funny because I guess I never, you never think about, or at least I never think about it, but there's other countries that that border Israel and Judah. It's not just like the big empires that are around them. And so we're talking about them. Uh, I think about it all the time. I don't know what's wrong with you. I know. I'm just, I'm I'm not a thinker. Uh, But obviously (laughs) there was for a time, the Northern kingdom of Israel, they're gone and they're not including these oracles. But in addition to Israel, there was also Ammon in the Northeast. Moab in the east of uh, of Ruth fame, uh, Edom in the south of Esau fame. I was going to say, and then uh, Philistia in the west of in the fame of Goliath of Goliath fame. Yeah, you know Ammon. I'm sure there's a famous one I'm forgetting. Am- the Ammonites. That's a thing. That's in Judges, maybe. But anyway, sorry everybody. Um, after this, Ezekiel drills down on two specific nations, or really one city and one nation, which is kind of interesting. And that's most of this section is mm-hmm. just focusing on the oracles about them. Uh, so it's Tyre and Egypt. So Tyre was the capital of uh, Phoenicia, uh, which was a very seafaring culture. So they're on the west coast of the the west coast of Western Asia on the east coast of the Mediterranean. If that's that's a weird way to say it, <laughs> that's a very basically weird way. if you, you know if they're where modern day Israel is. You go a little bit north, and that's where they're at. Um, <laughs> well, that's but, easier. Thanks. Yeah, but they're they're a trade they're a trading people. So they go through. That's how they're making their wealth. They have big ships. They have a big navy, and they're trading with all of the different nations in the Mediterranean. Um, and that's why I mean that's why the Mediterranean is so prosperous because it's kind of this like, it's a big sea where you can connect a lot of land. Um, but because it's locked, it's not nearly as stormy as like the open ocean. So you can actually, you know, you can sail there and not die, which mm-hmm. is a big plus, a big plus if you're a trading society. And so that's where, uh, that is where they made their hay. Uh, entire was the capital. So they were understandably uh, pretty stoked when Jerusalem fell. So they're like, hey, sweet, rival city, you're down. That's what I'm talking about. Let's go tire. Uh, and then God's not too pleased about that. So, and we get the classic language that God is against tire. So it says, behold, I am against you, which is, I mean, we've talked about it so many times, but like- You don't want God to say that to you. Yeah. FYI. Don't, don't let that, don't let that phrase become something that we just kind of skip past. 
that is a terrifying thing yes. to, to read and to, to hear. Uh, and then they are told that Nebuchadnezzar is coming for them just like Jerusalem. In chapter 27, Ezekiel is commanded to proclaim a lament for the city of Tyre, uh, which stands as an interesting companion to the laments over Jerusalem. So remember like uh, Jeremiah and especially the book of Lamentations, you're getting these big poetic there, I mean, there's a, it's a crass way of saying it, I guess, but like sad poetry about the fall of Jerusalem is, is what they are. So Ezekiel is doing one for Tyre. So he's, he's doing a whole lament for them. Um, it's interesting the way that it's described. It reminds me a lot of Venice, like the way that it's just hmm. like, it's a, it, it's used as a, a ship, a mighty ship of the Mediterranean, but it's basically like, it's talking about how your borders are the sea. And you go through, um, and that's how you make all of your wealth. And it's, it's really similar, actually, in history to, to Venice in that sense. So that's all. That's all I could picture when I was uh, when I was reading it. So that's not like biblical or anything. That's just what was in my head. So if that's helpful, <laughs> yes, I guess there you go. Uh, yeah, but Tyre was a prosperous merchant city on the shores of the Mediterranean. Uh, Ezekiel decide, describes the beauty of the city, and he laments describing the ruined city being beaten by the waves. So yeah, it's a bummer. Uh, and then finally, we get a lament over the rulers of Tyre, first the prince and then the king. Um, we are told that they are being ruined for their pride, particularly the prince is quoted as saying, I am a god. Like straight up, that's in the poem. Where, like it, it says, the, for the prince, you have said, I am a god. So, and here's the deal, listeners. Um, you know, God doesn't like sin. He's not about it. Uh, but claiming to be a god, that's up there. That is really, yeah. that's really high up there for things that that Yahweh doesn't appreciate. So... Uh, yeah, it's, he's don't not do gonna, it. He's not going to take too kindly to no. it. And I guess that is that is a theme with Tyre, and then also with Egypt when we get to them. Is uh, you know, it's Pharaoh's claiming a little bit of that stuff too. And then yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, at the end of chapter twenty-eight, we get a little oracle against Sidon, which is also going to be destroyed. So they're just kind of thrown in there. It's like, hey, you know, also you guys, yeah, <laughs> you're doomed. Uh, and then and in chapter twenty-nine. Ezekiel shifts his attention to the nation of Egypt and God comes in hot. So this is uh, chapter 29, verses three through five. It says, speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you. There Pharaoh. it is again. Yep. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I mean, Oops. just, yeah. Pause. Well, pause there, right? Like Egypt is... It is almost impossible to fathom how long Egypt had been around, like has been around, yeah. but also had been around even in biblical times. Um, I've, said, I've said this quite a few times, but it's just always crazy to remind myself that Cleopatra lived closer to the invention of the iPhone than the construction of the pyramids. That's how long Egypt has been so around. So crazy. And so you get like, and again, it's, it's sinful and it's wrong, but you understand where the pharaohs are coming from is like, yeah, we have this mighty kingdom. It's always going to be here. We've survived the Bronze Age collapse and we've survived empires before. We're not going to fall now. And part of it is really because their their borders are so secure because they're just like they're uh, surrounded by desert. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're on the Nile. It's good, fertile land. And then it's just desert all around them. And so it, it's very hard to invade Egypt. So you get the pride that's coming here. Um, but God's like, hey, you know what? It's not going to last forever. Uh, in verse four, he says, I will put a hook in your jaws and make the fish of your stream sick. Uh, stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all of the fish of your streams that stick to your scales, and I will cast you out into the wilderness. You and all your all the fish of your streams, you shall fall on the open field and be not be brought together or gathered to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens. I give you as food. Sweet. Yep. So basically, that like that vast wilderness that is of 
of protection to you, that's where you're going. Um, that Nile that you're relying on with all of the fish and the thing that feeds you, not happening anymore. It's kind of just a whole, it's a whole thing. So yeah. really interesting. Uh, Egypt is rebuked for also, they're also rebuked for so often failing to uphold their end of alliances. So God is angry at Judah mm-hmm. for not trusting in him and for going to other nations for alliances. Um, but he's also angry at those other nations for not upholding their end. Because Judah, time and time again, they go to Egypt and like, hey, you know, but which is so ironic, I guess. I mean, obviously, it's been a long time since the Exodus, but so ironic having the Exodus in mind. And then all of a sudden, like, um, a few centuries later, the Israelites are like, oh, yeah, Egypt, our great saviors. <laughs> like, those guys are awesome. <laughs> um, but God rebukes Egypt for always failing to, to uphold it. Because Judah was really relying on Egypt to protect them from Babylon. Didn't happen. Yep. Um, in chapter 30, it gives us another lament, this time for the nation of Egypt. It describes how the nation will fall to Babylon. In Ezekiel 31, uh, he declares that Pharaoh will be slain. And with chapter 2, giving us a lament over both Egypt and the Pharaoh. So it's kind of a, a, a dual lament there. Chapter 33 kicks off with the final section of Ezekiel. So now we're done kind of focusing on here's all what's happening to all the other nations. We're focusing back in on the people. Um, and it focuses on the future hope and the restoration of Israel, which is a theme in, you know, I, I do I do appreciate this, that in all of the prophetic books where it's like, you're doomed, um, as far as when they're talking about Israel and Judah, there is that promise of future restoration. It's not just leaving them where they're at. Even like Jeremiah, which is the most depressing of all the prophetic yeah. books, there's still the, uh, the fam- I mean, Jeremiah 2911 is the famous one, yeah. um, but there's a bunch of famous passages about how like God will still there's like, hope. yeah, he's not abandoning you. Um, so we're reminded that Ezekiel is, uh, the watchman for his people. It is his job to warn them of the dangers that are coming. It's the people's job, however, to act. Um, the people are reminded of how they got to where they are. And then after 12 years of exile, so this is after, remember, they're taken with Jehoiakim and they're taken into exile. 12 years later, a fugitive from Jerusalem brings the news and tells Ezekiel that the city has fallen. Um, which is kind of, I, I guess it's one of those things where it, this can sound really stupid because obviously... <laughs> Obviously, they don't have news, right? Because it's 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 ancient world. So they're not like turning on TV. They're not like <laughs> on their phones. Like, oh, Jerusalem fell. So yeah. they're they they don't they didn't see the social media posts. Yeah. So all this happens, and they don't they're not aware that it happens. And the way that they find out is all of a sudden refugees start coming, and one of them is just Ezekiel pulls them aside, and he's like, "Yeah, this is what happened. Jerusalem fell." So yeah. uh, you can ima- close your eyes and imagine, listener, what that what unless you're driving, don't do that. But imagine what that would have been like to. After all this buildup, all this time, you're not really sure what's going to happen. You finally get the news that your your beloved city has fallen, and now there really is no hope for and to avoid the exile. The exile is here. Uh, chapter 34. Uh, in chapter 34, he rebukes the shepherds and the sheep of Israel. So this is metaphorically speaking. So the shepherds and the sheep are you know the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel. Uh, God here promises to sort through the sheep as he will eventually restore Israel. And then the language used at the end is of Yahweh being the good shepherd watching over his flock. Hmm. I wonder if that metaphor ever makes a comeback. Probably not. But... Probably, yeah, probably <laughs> certainly not in Christ. Uh, in chapter 35... Is a, it's a prophecy against Mount Seir, uh, which is the Mount Zion of Edom. So I just I just didn't know that. So I think huh. that's interesting. But yeah, so when it talks about Jerusalem is always paired with, it's called Zion half yeah. the time. And it's always paired with Mount Zion because that's the mountain where Jerusalem stands. Uh, Mount Seir is that mountain. I don't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that t- t- uh, correctly, to be honest. It could be Seir. Um, 
But that is the same type of thing for Edom. So when Edom thinks of their mighty fortress in the mountains, that's the one they think of. Um, And there's a prophecy against that mountain. Eventually, or immediately following it, the downfall prophecy of Mount Seir, uh, there is a promise of the restoration of the mountains of Israel. So it's kind of contrasting those two mountains, um, although it's not Zion specifically, it's just the mountains of Israel. Uh, And then Yahweh promises to restore the nation, and in doing so, he will be glorified, which I think is a really important point. And this has been a theme in Ezekiel a few times, because remember he talked about how in Egypt, he brought them out of Egypt, not because they earned it, not because they were mm-hmm. like, you know, like there's amazing people. He brought them out for his name because he knows people yep. know that the Israelites are Yahweh's chosen people and it does not glorify God to have them just kind of like off in the side. And so he brings them up out of it. Here we're saying he's restoring Israel again, not because they earned it, but yeah. because it, it he... God wants his own name glorified. And that sounds that sounds wrong, but it's not. And I think, yeah, yeah one of the way I forgot, I wish I could give credit to whoever said this because it's really <laughs> smart. Um, it was me, probably. I, yeah, I heard this when I was like a teenager. So it's, it's just been, yeah. it's been a few years. We were friends. We were friends. On MySpace back then. Um, but it, someone was talking about how like God cannot commit idolatry. Like God cannot get, commit pride because pride is thinking more highly of yourself then you should. It's not understanding your place. Hmm. It's impossible for God to think more highly of himself than he should because he's God. He's the creator of the universe. He is mm-hmm. the ultimate being. And so when we when we look at God um, wanting his name to be glorified, we can think of that from a human perspective, which is wrong. Because obviously, if I'm, if I'm living my life for the name of yep. Evan to be glorified, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's sinful. Um, when God lives for his glory that is not wrong. Like that is, that is the right thing. Um, we should live to glorify God, but in the same sense, it is right that God wants his glory as well. So that's it's kind of like a weird, th- it's a weird way to phrase it, I guess, or a weird way to look at it. But I think sometimes we can read those passages um, and think of God as being different than he actually yeah. is. But, but I think it's a really good distinction and point to be made because it is really easy to to sit here and my quote unquote high horse and be like, oh, God's so prideful. And it's, and it's true. It's, he's not. Right. <laughs> um, if anything else, his, his character, the way that he's rule, ruled as the creator, as the sovereign being in the world, he's humbled himself more than anything else. Like he has shown himself to be more humble. Um, and, and the greatest example of all that is Christ where he right. willingly denied his divinity. Like, so, so there's this dynamic there where I think, yes, yeah, sitting on our hours, cause I can't tell you how many times there's been the, the thought in my head as a, you know, as I'm reading by the Bible or even conversations with different people about the simple fact of like, God, you want to glorify your name in this. And it feels weird to say that mm-hmm. like, this is God is, God is redeeming my life to glorify his name. That sounds so self-serving. And at the end of the day, yes, like it, God is a good father who is redeeming in the business of redeeming humanity. So it is self-serving. He wants the love that he carries, the hope, the purpose, the, all of those things, the redemption that he carries. He wants those things. So I think it's, it's a really important distinction because we, when we sit on our, when we sit in our, our, our places and say, that's so self-serving, that's pride in us. <laughs> it's thinking, I know better than you. So I think it's a really important distinction to understand. Like God's purpose is that all humanity might be saved through Christ to glorify him. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's, we were created worshiping. Like, so there's that dynamic. I think it's a really important distinction because it's so easy to sit back with our arms crossed thinking I know better. 
I don't. So. Yeah, that's a that's a theme in a lot of the Bible. Is uh, and it's a lot of humanity. Yeah, people thinking that we know better than God, but but we don't. Uh, and it's not that I don't. It's I think really what it's rooted in is I don't agree with God, and I don't agree with this, and I'm unwilling to submit to His lordship. I think that's the real issue mm-hmm. in humanity. So, like to totally shift gears for a second, I think that's the biggest thing. It's not. I know better. It's actually, I don't agree with you, God. And so I actually think something would be better. I want my way to be done. Well, my I guess, will to be done. But even like saying, I don't agree with you, the implication there is that you know better. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. You, like, you don't openly say. We, but when we say like, I don't, because we don't openly say I know God, right? I, I know better than God. Um, but but there's moments where it's like, I really, I just don't like that this is the way God has placed order in the world as we know it. Right. I don't like that God has defined this this way. I don't. I don't like that. I don't like it. And because I don't like it, I think there's a different way that I would say is better because I'm prideful. Like, mm. so in that, like I would write, like there's part of me, it's like, just like, like, just be honest and say, I don't like this. And I think that's okay. But I think the submission to Lordship is a big deal. And when we say, yeah, anyways, it's, it's splitting hairs, I think to a degree, but mm. it's just interesting. There's so much reality in the, in the tension we feel. So right. total side note. Well, here we're going to go to chapter 37, which is probably the, I don't not even probably, it's the most famous chapter of Ezekiel. So we're just going to kind of read it because we got, you know. It's hands down one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It's a good time. Well, let's talk about it. Let's read it and let's talk about it. So uh, chapter 37, starting in verse one, it says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around them and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath and say to the breath thus says the lord god come from the four winds o breath and breathe on these slain that they may live so i prophesied and he as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army then he said to me son of man these bones are the whole house of israel behold they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost we are indeed cut off Therefore prophesy to them and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves and my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when you open your graves and and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I shall put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then when you, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, it's funny, like Sunday school, where the song was like, bones, bones, dry bones. I don't know. I don't remember how it goes. But then the, the, the hook is like, <laughs> now hear the word of the Lord. Dun, dun. But I don't remember that song. Really? Yeah. Oh, that, maybe that was just me. But yeah, it's, it's, it is just this incredibly powerful picture. Because you again, imagine, put yourself into the mind of Ezekiel. You're just hearing about 
the fall of Jerusalem and that so many of your so many of your friends and family who were left behind they're they're gone now um the siege the siege was brutal um it was exceptionally bloody like the, the many people of Israel were killed and so when when Ezekiel is taken to a valley of dry bones um I can't help but imagine like the valleys of Jerusalem and that it's it's the slain of the armies um and he's looking around and obviously that's not said and he would have yeah. said like it was the valley of Jerusalem but I, I I'm sure that's at least in the back of his mind as like this could be what's what the scene is right now in my homeland and then not only that but but the the he makes it very clear like what's the metaphor here the metaphor is that the dry bones are like the people of Israel that they're gone they're without hope but God is not going to let them stay that way. And he's going to breathe life back into them. And then you get, I mean, it's kind of a creepy, um, it's kind of a creepy picture when it says that flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Yeah, like, what right. does that even mean? Like, I don't know, it reminds me of like, a, um, almost like the rhyme of the ancient <laughs> or something like that, or zombies where it's just like this really unsettling picture of kind of like a halfway point. But I love the picture that, God gives of even when you're dead and hopeless and dry, dry bones means that they've been dead a long time, that there is still hope. And then I can't help but also like you, you view it through a, a, a the lens of Christ. Like when we're dead in sin, mm-hmm. God still brings us back to life. Yeah. And that's the, that's kind of the promise that we get through. Um, that's the promise that we get through Christ. And Paul reminds us of it so many times that we were dead in sin, but now we're alive in Christ. And I think this is kind of, it's pointing towards the redemption of Israel, but it's also pointing toward our redemption as mankind mm-hmm. through through Christ. Uh, so Yahweh also uses, uh, yeah, I, I love the phrase, you shall be my people, uh, they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. I don't know if I've ever heard you say that before. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, I also realized, so I guess inside baseball a little bit, listener, we're going to record a few in a row here because Aaron's going on vacation, so ugh, but... Um, so we've we've done some prep for Revelation, which we're starting next week, and I, I had I did not know how much Ezekiel and Revelation connect. Like it's insane. Mm-hmm. There's it's, a, yeah, there's a ton, and so that phrase Daniel is, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, Daniel, I kind of I, I knew in the back of my head at least. Yeah, Ezekiel. As well, I'm, it's, and we we've, we've done the deep dives over the last couple of years with Daniel, but mm-hmm. Ezekiel, yes, it's it's Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation that are huge in the in the the end times conversation. Yes, yeah. as I was reading through. Um, Revelation. Yeah, you get, I mean, I guess spoilers for next week, but so you get like that phrase. It's a teaser. It's not a spoiler. Is there all the time? Um, just like Ezekiel eats the scroll, John eats the scroll in Revelation when, he, when he's told that yeah. he's going to prophesy the word of the Lord. And then these guys, chapter 38 in Ezekiel is one of the most difficult passages to interpret. It's a prophecy against Gog, which is a great name, uh, and the kingdom of Magog. So Gog is the king of Magog. And here's the thing. We have no idea who these people are. We have no, no clue. There's, there's like some conjecture, um, but who knows? And they might be symbolic of just kind of the enemies of Israel in general. Um, some interpreters view this as an end times prophecy waiting to be fulfilled. Um, either way, the point is that Yahweh is sovereign over every human kingdom. Uh, but guess where Gog and Magog come up again? It's in the book of Revelation. And as I was reading through it, I was just like, oh, this is where they are. Like, it's, it's just kind of interesting how, how many of those things connect. Uh, chapter 40 is Ezekiel's vision of a restored temple. Uh, and this takes up the rest of the book. The whole rest of the book is the Ezekiel looking at the restored temple. Um, once again, he is led around the temple. So remember last week we talked about how 
uh, in one of the visions, Ezekiel is led around the temple. It's kind of this creepy, almost Christmas carol vibe where it's like the ghost of Christmas past or something like leading Scrooge. Uh, Ezekiel is being led through the temple and all throughout the walls, he's seeing the iniquities of his people. So it's this temple. It was built to glorify God. This is what it's here for. And instead, it's just kind of a monument to Israel's depravity. Mm-hmm. So now Ezekiel is being led through the temple. However, this time there is no sin of the Israelites. And then it's just described in in intricate detail. Like it reads like those passages in Kings where it talks about, and this is how many cubic feet are in like with the rooms. That is exactly what happens in Ezekiel. He's describing, um, he's describing a building. Like this is a building that he sees and he's writing down the dimensions of it. What's really interesting, however, is that it is, it's clearly not the temple that's rebuilt by Zerubbabel and later Herod. That's, that's not the temple that's being described. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're not told exactly what this temple is. And so there's a few different ways to interpret it. It could be like it's symbolic and it's just talking about like the uh, the temple in the sense of like God's presence returning. Part of me though, I, I honestly think it, I think it's a description of the temple in the new Jerusalem though, yeah. where like it's just Ezekiel is, he's not being shown the temple that's going to come in a few generations. He's being shown the temple at the return of Christ, yeah, which I think is really cool. So, um, well, and I, I, I would take that same line of thought only because, like, there's no, you don't see the iniquity. It's a, it's a comparison to what was seen before, um, and you, you, which is this, like, this piece of like purity, like, and it's mm-hmm. and it's pure glory. Like, there's that temple piece. So, um, I, I'd take that line of thought myself, but I'm not necessarily the brilliant scholars. So. Well, if we agree, then it's true. So just yes. <laughs> so, yes, finally. And this is, I mean, we're going to talk about this a lot in the next couple of weeks with Revelation, but obviously with interpretation of prophecy, it's very open. Yes, so very, you just, very. It's, there's kind of things that we think, um, but at the end of the day, who knows? Um, and then finally, it, or not, I shouldn't say finally, but this is kind of like one of the last big things that we're going to talk about. Ezekiel 43 presents a vision of Yahweh's glory once again filling the temple, which again, just kind of take yourself- Which is incredible. Yeah. Take yourself back in time. We we talk about how Ezekiel's vision was that he sees the glory of God in the temple and then it goes to the door and then it just leaves. And it doesn't just leave the temple, it leaves Jerusalem. Yeah. And then that's when like, and I, I, I don't know, I'm just imagining like the silence that he must have felt in that vision where all of a sudden like God's glory is gone and the city is quiet and the armies of Babylon Mm. are on the outside. And it's just the, the depths of hopelessness. Yeah. It's it's the eeriness before anything happens. It's just, yeah. Bad happens. Like the, the fear (laughs) that you would feel in that moment. Um, And so I think equally equal to the fear of that moment is just the joy of seeing God's presence come back into the temple. And I think it's kind of what, we remember in Ezra, there's that weird passage where the temple's rebuilt and then the oldest people begin to weep because they didn't see like, it seems like it's because they didn't see God's glory come back into yeah. the temple. And so I think that's like, that's kind of like what they're expecting. And I don't know, again, this is all very open-handed. Um, but you, you have to wonder too, is like, is some of this prophesying about like the return of Christ? Hmm. And that's really when the glory of God is. So anyway, that's, that's a whole nother thing. But yeah. Ezekiel 43, this is a really cool passage. It says, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. 
And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Cheber Canal, and I fell on my face. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, in case you're wondering which gate, this is the one that's facing east. Uh, (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking out, uh, speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor the kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at, the, at their high places. By setting... Their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts by my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and their dead bodies of the kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. So again, it's an opportunity for repentance. Um, mm-hmm. And we've talked about, I feel like we've said, this, we've said this a lot, so maybe this isn't a thing that we have to keep harping on, but like... The hopelessness in Ezekiel and Jeremiah is that there's no hope of uh, there's no hope of escaping the fall of Jerusalem. It is definitely not that there's no hope in ever repenting and turning back to the Lord. That is very much still on the table. Yeah. It's like please, it's, it's really the whole time is like, please do this. It's just saying this one thing is going to happen yeah. because you've broken covenant too many times. Um, and in the final chapters of Ezekiel, they detail the remainder of the temple plans. Uh, and then the book ends. I thought this was kind of interesting. The book ends with the land of Israel being divided among the 12 tribes. Um, and I, th- I kind of take this as it's like a sign of hope because it echoes, remember, in the book of Numbers, right before the Israelites under Joshua and Caleb go in to take hold of their land, the land is divided. God tells them how it's going to be divided up. And there's kind of a census taken of all the people. Ezekiel kind of echoes that, that as they're preparing to one day go back to Israel. They're going to go back to Jerusalem. And we know that's true, right? Because we've already went through Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and so the, the the land is once again divvied up. So kind of kind of a cool, hopeful moment there. But that is where that is where we wrap up the book of Ezekiel. And then this week we have one psalm and a question that came in. So we'll do hey. we'll do both of those. But before we do, we do just want to take a moment, listeners, beloved listeners. It don't, sounds like a sales pitch. Yeah, don't, don't forget to leave us a five-star review, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, that's what's really helpful. And honestly, it just helps get the podcast out there to more people. So um, if you're thinking, wow, Aaron and Evan, you guys are cool and I like you. <laughs> hey, listener, we like you too. And the five-star oh, review would be a great way to cement cement our eternal friendship. So there you, there you go. <laughs> we're, we're a really simple breed. Uh, no, yeah, we'd love for you to do it. I appreciate it. I know Spotify, you've hit 103 so far as of the recording of this podcast, uh, which is so rad. Uh, uh, Apple Podcast, you're sitting at 90. And so uh, thank you for our listeners. I, I appreciate you being part of the Let's Read the Bible podcast family. Uh, and I look forward to... What, what the rest of this year holds and even what next year holds. So uh, as Evan said, we are reading one Psalm this week uh, and that is Psalm 90. Uh, and uh, I said this the last couple of weeks, but I just want to reiterate if this is your first episode that you're listening to, thank you for jumping in. Uh, we just kind and try and take a high view of the Psalms because there's so many of them uh, and allows us to have time to, to really dive into other books. But because there's only one Psalm, I, I'll share a little bit more about it. I'm going to read the whole Psalm. Uh, which is all 17 verses. Uh, but I, I just think it, 
I think it's a pretty it's a pretty remarkable psalm that I really think is is worth spending time on for a few moments. Um, this is a community lament, lament. So this is where the people of Israel uh, would. This is something they would sing together. Uh, they would process together. Uh, there's an unspecified disaster at its background, uh, and in the psalm, there's a, a question to God uh, to have pity on His people and to bless them. Um, the psalm, just as some other side notes here, is ascribed to Moses, actually. Uh, and through it, he invites the singing uh, a congregation to picture Israel around the time of Deuteronomy uh, and as they were about to cross the Jordan River and enter the Promised Land. So that's kind of the setting of this psalm. And I want us to remember that as we uh, jump in and read this in a second. Uh, but also a few things to remember, too, like their parents uh, of the, the generation entering the Promised Land uh, followed Moses out of Egypt. So there's the parallel talking about Egypt a little bit. Um, and they par- with, walked through the Red Sea. And then afterwards they rebelled uh, and God swore that they would not enter the land. So they wandered through the wilderness. Uh, and the the picture here is like for the Israelites to accomplish the mission that God has for them and for him to establish the work of their hands would require that the people embrace the covenant and live in faith toward God. Um, so those who sing or pray this psalm should see themselves as an heir of that generation, uh, of the ones entering the promised land, remembering their parents um, and seeking uh, like God's people in the time t- for God's blessing uh, so they can carry out the mission that God has for them. Um, and, and so that's kind of the context leading into the psalm. That's the, 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 the stage, if you will, that is set for Psalm 90. Uh, and so in light of that, here's what it says. It says this, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from the eternity to eternity, you are God. You return mankind to dust, saying, return, descendants of Adam. For in your sight, a thousand years are like the yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows, by evening it withers and dries up. For we are consumed by your anger, we are terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives, la- our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years, even in the best of them, our struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. I love that line because I think it's important. And we've talked about this on the podcast, so it's just a reiteration of it. But living with the end in mind, understanding that our days are numbered, understanding that we're not guaranteed eternity on this present earth, but that comes in eternity. So living with that actually changes the way we we live our lives and, and, and walk with wisdom. Um, he says, Lord, in verse 30, 13, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. May Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us. For as many years we have seen adversity. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of your hands. Establish the work of your hands. And I just love this psalm because it's it's such a, a it, it's a community lament. So it literally is crying out to God, asking God for help. Uh, but the picture that it has is the stage that was set of wandering through the wilderness, having crossed the Red Sea, parents rebelling, generation being killed off, 
and they're wandering the wilderness and they're crying out to God saying, God, have mercy on us. God, provide for us. We have seen adversity. We have seen hardship. Uh, and so, Lord, we're asking that you would return the days of joy for as many days as we've seen hardship. They're seeking God's blessing. They're seeking him for favor and provision again. Um, and I just think it's such a it's such a, a beautiful picture uh, of a generational shift. Um and, and obviously we know history, biblical history, we know the Israelite history, they don't always uphold their end of it, uh, much like we don't. But I just appreciate the fact that we, like the whole idea and the understanding of who God is um, and, and the weight that, that we can carry, it, even today, understanding like when we face adversity, we can still reflect and call God because he has been the refuge of every generation. So uh, it's a great Psalm. I hope you're going to enjoy it when you read it. Uh, but that's the one Psalm we hit this week. So, and you know what? A good Psalm, it like is. you said. Yes. All right. Well, we got uh, we did get a question in this week, and so let's say uh, hello there. Let's read the Bible bibliographers. I love the bibliographers. <laughs> uh, you talked about put how, that on my resume. <laughs> you talked about how Ezekiel was a peer of Daniel, but in Ezekiel fourteen, he actually references Daniel. Was Daniel so well known and good at being a prophet that he was already held in such high esteem by all the Jews? So really interesting. Uh, and here's the points that he is referencing. So in Ezekiel chapter 14, he references Daniel twice, and it says this, um, And the word of the Lord came to him, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and it breaks its supply of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut it off from man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, hello, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. And then later on, a few verses, it says, or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut it off from man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Okay. Dang. So really interesting. Um, it's funny because like, so this is a uh, l- beloved listener, Tim reached out with this and I was like... In my head, I was like, I did like research on this. Why did I not talk about this in the podcast? I realized I did research on this for Job is why I was like, why I had the, why I had the scripture in my head. But I was like, yeah, like, why didn't I include this thing? But anyway. Apparently, so, you don't have as high a value of Daniel as you do Job. Apparently not. Hmm. So I know. Yeah. So I was, cause I was, kidding. yeah, I was thinking about like, you know, cause I was writing a thing on Job and I was like, where's the other places that he's referenced in the Bible besides the book of Job? And it's only two. It's Ezekiel and James are the only two places where it happens. So Crazy. that's why I was talking about it. But anyway. Daniel is what we're talking about today, not Job. Um, okay, so this Daniel could be two different people. Um, he's been traditionally identified as the prophet Daniel, and this is where I would I, I would land here. Yeah, I think this is it's safe to say that this is probably true. Um, however, there's you know there's there's two options it could be. Um, the reason for this is being the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream would have already happened before Ezekiel's call. Um, so it's possible that Daniel was already well known by this point because, you know, that's a big deal, yeah, interpreting absolutely. dreams. absolutely. Uh, which also means his stand about the uh, I'm not going to eat the, the meat of the king would have still happened. And so if you're looking for um, – what, because what do Noah, Job, and Daniel all have in common is that they steadfastly stick with the Lord in the midst of really difficult times. Noah, well, and they were the only one. Right. Of their stories, they were the only one that stood f- firm in in the context with which they were their stories developed. Right. Noah, only one building an ark. Daniel, only one that does not that that led the way. Like Yadak, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have their things, whatever the name the actual Hebrew names are, Mishael, Oh, um, Hananiah and Azariah. Yes, and Mishael. 
Is Misha- that what it is? Mishael. Mishael, I believe. Yeah. Anyways, all that to say, um, like they, that they they were the ones and Job stood firm in, in righteousness. Now he, we know his story, right? But he's the one who stood firm. So in their store, respective stories, they were singularly the ones who stood firm and in, in trust and faith in who God is. Mm-hmm. So the other way that you can interpret this is that Daniel is... Um, from he's from Ugarit test U- Ugarit oh my gosh I can't even pronounce it Ugarit is a city in like northeast of Israel or northwest of Israel, um, and he's just known as like a wise and righteous ruler. And so this, the reason that this name is put forward too is because Job and Noah, in addition to being, in addition to standing alone in righteousness in their moments, the other thing that's interesting is they're both Gentiles. Neither of them are Jewish. Hmm. And so the thought there is is are they referencing the Ugarit really? king? Um, as an example of basically a righteous, um, a righteous Gentile who knows the Lord, um, like worships Yahweh, but isn't a part of the Jewish faith. So, or isn't a part, I guess, but um, isn't a part of the nation of Israel is actually the better way to say that. So that's why, that's why it's possibly another person, um, which I, I, I do think it's an interesting connection, but I mean, I'm, I'm tr- yeah. Cause you could have said Elijah, right. As far as like mm-hmm. examples of Israelites who stood alone. I mean, you could, honestly, you could say any of the prophets basically as people who stood alone. Um, but so, but, but yeah, basically it's the idea there that Daniel is the prophet and he's an example of someone who's kind of stood alone, or are they trying to get at this point of essentially God, he's not, he's not even what he's so angry. He's not even going to reference righteous Israelites. He's re- he's referencing um, the righteous who are not a part of that. So there you go. I'm still stuck on the Daniel and Noah and, uh, Job not being, or being Gentiles. Well, and I, and I guess it makes sense because they, in essence, they came before, like Noah lived before Abraham. Right. Before God's set of people himself. So it was the same with Job. Uh, Job probably was a contemporary of a, of, he was, well, it depends on how you decide. I view Job as a contemporary of Joseph. Um, but there's a, obviously there's a very wide, yeah. it could be. Yeah. Any time interesting, period. just interesting. Okay, um, yeah. So Gentile might be the wrong word because Gentile exists entirely as a contrast to Jews. Yeah. Whereas the time of Job and Noah, there weren't Jews. Yeah. Because <laughs> God hadn't set a people for Himself yet. Right. Exactly. So that's where it makes sense. So yes. I guess the way I would put it is maybe the the better way instead of Gentiles, the better way to phrase it would be non-Israelites. Mm-hmm. I suppose is the way to put it there. But anyway, interesting. Um, all that all that to say, uh, yeah. So and it, the prophet Daniel is an Israelite. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that that would be the only difference. That that's why the, you could look at it from a, a, someone that was not Daniel the prophet. So, yeah. all Anyways. all all that to say, beloved listener. Uh, yes, it is very much possible that that by the time Ezekiel is doing his thing, Daniel is already well known mm-hmm. as as a prophet of the people. Um, I don't know about highly esteemed. <laughs> I mean, but... by the people, I don't know. I mean. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would think I would think the the food thing was a big like a big deal mm-hmm. as far as it kind of standing up for yeah, the, you're probably right. The law and the commands. Yeah, of so God. those are probably a good chance. And I think you know the the people of Israel they're not great. And his prophecy was more towards Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon. Right. So yeah. Okay. And at this point, fiery furnace and gold statue haven't happened, or lions. Obviously, lions hasn't happened yet. But yeah, it's the anyways. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great question. All this. Yeah. Yeah. So it is really, it is really interesting to. I, I love the parts of scripture where we get prophets referring to each other, uh, and we're going to get one of those not prophets, but we're going to get some apostles referring to each other here in a few weeks as well. So good times. But anyway, listeners, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. 
As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. They're under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There is a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.